We'll read now from Genesis chapter 50, and we'll read from verse 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded us, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The connection with this uh, we'll read from... Belgic Confession, Article 13, The Doctrine of God's Providence. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples, so as to learn only what he has shown us in his word, without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort, since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father, He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under his control, so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. For that reason we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans, who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, say you're driving down the road and uh, suddenly some birds arise from the ditch and fly in the direction of your car and uh, passing in front of your car, suddenly you hear a thump. And uh, when you get home, you discover that there's a dead bird stuck in your grill. And... uh, you might think, what could be more random than that? Was it a sudden gust of wind, a, a miscalculation in a bird brain that led him to his death? But actually, we're given to see from the words of our Lord Jesus that this too is under the sovereign control of our Heavenly Father, because not a sparrow falls without the will of our Heavenly Father. 
and the very hairs of our head are numbered. And that indicates something of the amazing extent of God's holy government of the world. And that's what uh, the, the, the word providence refers to. God's holy and wise and good government of whatever takes place in this world. And of course, this knowledge of God and his absolute sovereign control of everything is totally contrary uh, to common ways of thinking, ways of thinking that are identified with the Epicureans who, who think that uh, God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything uh, to chance. And, uh, of course, that's contrary to the teaching of Scripture. But so is the idea that uh, God is involved in the big things, or God is involved in some positive things, but uh, the ordinary things, well, God is a bit farther removed from such matters. Sometimes you've heard the language where people say, it was a God thing. I don't really care for that kind of language. I think I understand what they mean. They're They're acknowledging God's providence. But in a way that perhaps suggests that this was an event in which God actually acted and we can uh, observe his hand at work. Maybe sometimes reformed people uh, speak of things in reformed language and they say that was a providential thing. And again, I understand what they mean and I'm not intending to criticize that because what they intend is that God's activity was noteworthy. It was very remarkable without denying that everything actually is a providential thing, right? There's all different kinds of providential things. There are ordinary providential things that we hardly take notice of. Uh, there are there are inconvenient providences. When your furnace breaks down on a cold day or you're, you get a flat tire on the way to an airport or the flight is delayed or canceled, and you can go on and on and list the kinds of inconvenient providences. Sometimes there are kind providences. When I left the car this morning, I noticed that my glasses weren't in my glass case. And I thought, where did I leave them? I'm trying to rack my brain to figure out where I left them. I thought, oh, I must have left them at the prayer meeting on Saturday morning. So I came downstairs. No, they're not on the table there. So I walked up in the back of the church. I think I'm going to have to preach uh, to a bunch of blurry faces this morning. But then I saw my glasses on that little wall by the book rack. And, I, oh, yeah, I remember I took them off there when I was looking at something there. That's a kind providence, a very small incidental thing. But we believe that God is involved in small and incidental things, don't we? Uh, we, we believe that God is involved in fascinating providences where we see his hand at work, maybe in little things, but in quite remarkable things. This past summer, I, I was in Idaho and I took a hike. And I came back to my motorcycle and uh, got geared up and got on my bike and took off down the road. All of a sudden, I saw a little baby chipmunk on my dashboard of the motorcycle around my speedometer. And I don't know how he got there or how he managed to stay there for any length of time. I couldn't believe it. And I pulled over to try to let him off or get him out, but he went back underneath the fairing there, and I couldn't find him. I get back on my bike and drive along. There he is again, this little chipmunk. So I stopped at the motel and looked around. I couldn't find him. I assume he crawled off at some point and got away. But it's one of those amazing little fascinating and delightful details where if we think as people who live in God's world, we recognize, yes, the hand of God is in such little things as well. 
And we recognize that God's hand is involved in hard providences, difficult things that involve suffering and trouble. So God is not just involved in big things. We reject that idea. We also reject the idea uh, that the, the biblical idea of God's providence is associated with that dreaded Calvinism who operate in a kind of a fatalistic world as if, well, whatever happens, it's God's will. And uh, in kind of a pessimistic way, as if this world is run by a kind of impersonal machinery that denies the significance of human choice, right? That's the, the way the Calvinistic view of God's sovereignty would be slandered. They minimize the importance of human action and decision, or they even blame God for sin, bad things, and we reject these ideas. But we also see that the alternative to a view of God's hand in everything is that some things or many things are simply under the control of random chance. Or worse, many things are under the power of wicked people and the power of Satan. And that would make us victims of these circumstances, these evil powers that are not only beyond our control, but they are out of control, out of God's control. That's not very comforting, is it? No, we believe that God governs all things by his wise and holy providence. We could add other adjectives. His good uh, providence, his incomprehensible great providence. But we know that God governs all things. And we want to look further at this truth that we confess. The first paragraph really, really captures it in a wonderful way. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. That ought to be mind-blowing for people who really believe it. It's just so astounding. But we recognize that this is a joyful confession that we make about our Maker and our Father. He is good. And His continued care for the world, the world that He made, testifies to all of His goodness. In Acts chapter uh, 14, the Apostle Paul cites this uh, good government of God over the world. In verse 17, where he says, God uh, did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Psalm 145, in verses 9 and 10, says, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. God's care extends to all things, small and great, to, uh, to falling birds and to feeding birds. Even in minus 40 degree weather, those kinds of small things, also, in larger things, in remarkable things, things like God preserving the lives of people under the rubble of an earthquake for 
for a week with little or no moisture and nothing to eat when all hope is gone and then it's found that God preserved life. We could give multiple examples of God's providential care and work over things because nothing is outside of his control. There's no chance of anything being outside of his rule. And yes, that does include bad things. We might put the word bad in quotation marks here because certainly uh, there are bad things in this world and they involve the work of evil people and the devil. But other kinds of bad things are also in his control, like failing health or failing eyesight or bad accidents or the death of loved ones. And see, in these kinds of things, seeing God's hand in a positive way and in a comforting way is more difficult because our, our natural inclination, uh, is to, to think that perhaps God's ways in such matters lack compassion or they're not fair. And this is especially true, isn't it? When bad things, uh, take place by the intentional and the evil acts of others. When there is violence and cruelty perpetrated upon others, when there is the victimization of the weak. Think of Joseph, that example that we're given in Scripture. What cruelty, what unnatural hatred on the part of his brothers. In the first epistle of John, such hatred is associated with the the devil's uh, work as evident in Cain, who was of the wicked one and who murdered his brother. And here are these children of Jacob, these grandchildren of Abraham, these boys conspire to take away the life of Joseph. Then they sell him into Egypt. The cruel lie that his father suffered for so many years. Things that they meant for evil, indeed. Things that were evil, without a question. And we live in a world where we hear of such things of school shootings, human trafficking, terrorist bombings, and we could go on and on and on. And yet in the face of such things as well, our our confession, it doesn't hedge, it does not uh, hesitate or falter, but says nothing happens without the will of God. You meant it for evil, Joseph said, properly so. But God meant it for good. Same thing. This treachery, these events that led uh, to the sale of Joseph, God's good and, and gracious purposes were at work to save many people alive through these evil events of evil people. And yes, we are confronted with the incomprehensible and wonderful ways of God, whereby he is and he does turn evil into good. And so what such a way that even such things are under his management and control. Job was not mistaken when he said the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Even when he used marauding bands of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans to, to rob him of his livestock and to kill his servants. And in this, Job did not sin with his mouth, nor did he charge God foolishly while he acknowledged his hand. 
In the prophecy of Amos, there is this rhetorical question. Is there calamity in the city and the Lord has not done it? Well, the implied answer is no. No, there, there is no such calamity in the city without the Lord's hand at work. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Uh, these are like four. I just gave like four examples. I've got a copy of the confession with proof text. And these are four of like 30 references of Scripture that reveal this truth that we're considering. God's sovereign control over everything, including the evil actions of people. And many of those passages actually teach how God judges sin at times by giving people over to sin and facing the consequences of their rebellion against him. But that does confront us, doesn't it? with the difficulty that we face as we maintain the teaching of God's absolute providence over all things. The difficulty placed, uh, stated very simply was how do we square that? How do we square that with God's holiness, his hatred of sin, his compassion, his love? Well, for one thing, we have to face this difficulty with honesty and with compassion. The struggle, the struggle over such questions is not simply theoretical. In many instances, it's very personal, agonizing. In the face of the suffering of children, in the face of the, the, the suffering of, of good people. We could go back to Job, right? Job was an upright man, blameless. And he suffered so greatly. And he faced the insinuations that a God who is fair and just would not reward a righteous and a good man with such affliction. And Job wrestled over these questions in a very profound and personal way, in the crucible of suffering. And that means that the answers must not be given in a glib way and in an unsympathetic way to the reality of the difficulty. They shouldn't be given in a simplistic way either, in a way that dishonors uh, God's justice or his holiness or his goodness. So how do we face this difficulty? Well, first of all, we must face it by resisting the temptation to deny it or to water it down. The testimony of Scripture is so clear. That's why it's been observed that a denial of God's sovereignty in all things is a step toward atheism. Now, people may never arrive at atheism, but a denial of God's sovereignty over everything is a step towards atheism. And one of the reasons for that is that the Bible is so absolutely clear on this question that the reasons for denying it is to place human feelings and human logic above the clear testimony of God's Word. And when you start doing that, you don't have any consistent stopping point. If you're only going to believe God's word when it seems to fit with our understanding and our feelings, we are on the pathway to atheism or rank unbelief. God's word is clear. God's sovereignty shines out. It shines out at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's like if there's anything I want you to remember in terms of Answering critics on this question, remember this argument. Remember this consideration that the scripture so clearly teaches. In Acts chapter 4, 
We read in the prayer of the church as they faced opposition to the gospel. They quote Psalm 2 of the raging of the nations, and then they say this, For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. All the injustice and the cruelty and the unbelief and the wickedness of those involved in bloodying their hands in the murder of the Prince of Life was under God's management and control. Him being delivered up by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, Peter says, you have taken and with wicked hands have put him to death. The same event that horrible event of the injustice of killing the prince of life by wicked hands is attributed to God's determined counsel and foreknowledge and purpose. It's promised from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, God is fulfilling his saving purpose in the death of Jesus and in the way it came about. And it's the supreme demonstration of God's justice, His sovereign faithfulness, and His love. Because they meant it for evil, but God meant it for a world of good, incalculable good, to save much people alive, to save a world of sinners from eternal condemnation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So resist the temptation to water it down or to deny it in any way. And then, we must reject all false conclusions of human reasoning with respect to this doctrine. In other words, we must reject any kind of logic that violates, that goes contrary to the teaching of Scripture on this point. We must resist drawing any kind of inferences, logical though they may seem to us, we must resist drawing any kind of inferences that the Bible does not make or that the Bible outright rejects. And that's a real danger. It's a real danger that human reason would draw inferences from biblical doctrines that the Bible itself does not make or the Bible outright rejects. I take the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We're not justified by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone. God justifies the ungodly who believe in his son. Well, human logic says, well, then let's glorify God's grace. Let's sin that grace may abound. If his grace is magnified in showing mercy to sinners, let's sin. We're accepted in God's sight. We're justified not by works, but by faith. You see, the apostle Paul anticipates that kind of ungodly logical deduction. He says, God forbid. May it never be. Or with respect to even the total depravity of man and the inability of man, that the natural man is not, the mind of uh, the natural man is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And the logical conclusion for that would be, well, then it's really God's fault if I remain unconverted. I can't help it. I'm totally depraved. That's very similar to a kind of objection to the doctrine of election, his sovereignty. Who has resisted his will? Right? 
Paul raises that objection in Romans chapter 9. It's like he, he, he uh, puts that in the mouth of the critic and the unbeliever. God is absolutely sovereign. I'm like a puppet. doesn't matter what I do. I can't resist his will. It's God's fault if I perish. That's implied. The Apostle Paul doesn't let that kind of irreverent response stand. He says, no, who are you, O man, to reply against God? Don't you dare object to God's ways. Concern yourself with what, what God commands you to do. Concern yourself not what, with what God does in his sovereign purposes, but concern yourself with what God tells you to do. God commands all men everywhere to repent. He commands sinners to believe in Jesus Christ. He accuses them with uh, calling God a liar if they deny his son. So we need to beware of drawing any kind of conclusions from any biblical doctrine that's contrary to the teaching of Scripture. And that's true with respect to this doctrine of God's providence. We must not misuse it. We must not dare to say, well, then God is the author of sin. God is to be blamed for the entrance of sin into the world. God is to be blamed for the continuation of sin in the world because if he's able to stop it, he ought to. And God is to be blamed for all the devastation caused by sin and suffering in this world. And by this kind of lie, people would justify their continuation in unbelief. They would blame God for their own lives as if they're simply victims of outward circumstances while doing nothing to resist sin in their own lives and blame God for it. This is the way God made me. It's a very popular form in which it's presented. And that's a damnable conclusion. In Deuteronomy chapter uh, 32, we read in verse 4 and 5, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves, is the next line. God is not the author of sin, nor can be charged with the sin that occurs. Categorical rejection of such an insinuation. Or another false conclusion that people might draw from this and, and say or think, well, then God is not really sincere because he denounces sin on the one hand, but it's sin that carries out his holy will on the other. So God doesn't really mean it when he denounces sin. That's an awful thing, isn't it? To question God's hatred of sin. Dare we question the sincerity of Jesus Christ when he wept over Jerusalem because of their unbelief and because of their wickedness? It says, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens, but you would not. So your house is left to you desolate. Would we dare charge God with insincerity when he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked? but that he should turn and live. Turn, turn. Why will you die, O Israel? That's from Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. And you know how it is prefaced? He says this, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know what God is doing here? He's taking an oath when he says, as I live. It's also it's almost as if he anticipates uh, an objection or the insinuation that God doesn't really mean it. Well, God swears by his own being that he takes no pleasure in the death of, of the wicked. And we ought not to dare to charge God with insincerity as he expresses his hatred for sin. 
the fact that he calls sinners to repent and takes no pleasure in their death. Or another uh, logical, apparent objection, this takes away all incentive to oppose evil. This doctrine of God's providence and his sovereign control over evil removes all incentive to fight against injustice because it's God's will that people suffer. You don't want to intervene and intrude and obstruct God's will. You know, sometimes that can take personal, a personal form, a very sad personal form where people in an abusive situation would say, well, it's God's will that I suffer and I'm a sinner and I deserve it anyway. And so I won't seek recourse. I won't seek to bring it to an end. And that's a misuse of God's sovereignty over evil. It must not be understood in such a way as to take away incentive to oppose evil and injustice. We need to reject these false conclusions. We need to repudiate them and confess that God's government is holy in every respect and wise and good. Positively, then, we need to face the difficulty as humble disciples of Christ. Take to heart the language of this confession where it says that his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend, but in all humility and reverence we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond these limits. If we can't fit everything together and package it up in a way that that fits our sensibilities in every respect, well, let's be little children humbling ourselves before an incomprehensibly great and good God and learn Psalm 131, where we quiet ourselves as a weaned child who doesn't have answers. But he's with his mother because he trusts in her. And so we ought to adore the righteous judgments of God and worship and wonder with a conviction that all his ways are right and good and that never excuses the wickedness of those who act wickedly or the devil or our own sin. But then thirdly, the comfort we embrace, unspeakable comfort. It's interesting that uh, the canons of Dort use this kind of language to uh, describe the effects of a believing uh, knowledge of God's sovereignty. It affords comfort beyond words that gives God's people the security of their salvation because it's not owing to their goodness or their choice, but it's owing to God, his purposes and grace. Unspeakable comfort. And uh, it should be a kind of comfort that surpasses any difficulty so that we do not see this doctrine as just presenting a kind of troubling conundrum to our faith, but rather it's a rock-solid foundation for the good fight of faith, that all that happens to us comes by the gracious arrangement of our Heavenly Father. Here's, here's a place to rest. There's a sense in which I think if we grasp this, if we internalized it, 
if it influenced us in our feelings and our thoughts from day to day, we should be people that are characterized by a kind of calm, right? We ought not to get ruffled too quickly about circumstances. We ought to be a kind of people that are marked by a kind of peace and composure because we live in God's world. And when we face inconveniences, when we get a flat tire on the way to the airport, or our furnace breaks down, or what have you, we don't have a tantrum. In a way, we ought to ask ourselves, hmm, I wonder what God is going to do through this. You see, if we fail to ask that question, we're going to miss a lot. We're going to miss out on the fact that perhaps we've had a conversation, a really important conversation with someone that is traceable to this very unpleasant, inconvenient providence that led to this, that led to that, led to that, and it brought about this. And the more thoughtful we become, the more we might be able to uh, marvel and wonder at God's works and not be so quickly ruffled and disturbed, but realize that we live in God's care and in his hands. It's a place to rest in the ordinary activities and relationships and unpleasantries and troubles of life and unanswered questions in trials and sufferings in this world. Right? That's how the psalm ends, Psalm 131. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forever. Guido Debray, the author of this confession, went to his death. Went to his death, we might say, with this confession. And he actually suffered a martyr's death, a kind of death as described in the letter that accompanied a copy of this confession that was sent to King Philip when the signatory said that they would offer their backs to the stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to the fire, rather than deny the truth expressed in this confession. That literally became true in Guido de Bray. His tongue was cut out. So he couldn't continue that confession, but that confession couldn't be removed from his heart. And he was burned for that faith that he believed. God's providences include hard providences. And trusting in him doesn't exempt us from trials. But if we suffer as Christians, we know that we also suffer according to the will of God, even when that may sometimes be at the hands of evil people. When with all our prayers and all our endeavors, uh, we may not be able to escape injustice, just as our Savior did. He suffered at the hands of evil people. But we may commit our souls then to him as to a faithful creator, knowing that by his great power and goodness, all things work together for good to those that love him, are called according to his purpose. Amen.